Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Dr. Sharon Morrison, Associate Professor of Public Health Education at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, speaking on the topic of immigrant and refugee experiences. Good afternoon, Dr. Morrison. Thank you for having me. To help us get started, could you share a little bit about you and your background and the work that you do that has brought you to speak on the topic of public health and social policy with a specific focus on immigrant and refugee experiences? Certainly. I arrived in North Carolina back in, in 2001. I came to Greensboro uh, to work at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and I began working through the Center for New North Carolinians, that, and that's a center affiliated with the United, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. I started working with them through their programming and outreach to immigrant refugees, and later started working more closely with colleagues and um, staff through an informal group, the Immigrant Research Support Group, which a handful of us started in the office of Raleigh Bailey, the then director of the center. And we began tackling a number of issues, uh, one of which was what were the kinds of resources and strategies in place to address refugee and immigrant newcomers to North Carolina, and specifically to Guilford County and Greensboro. Also, we had resettlement of Southeast Asian refugees, particularly Montagnards, a large wave were coming through at that time, probably about four or five or six hundred, and I became involved in that that process. I volunteered to help resettle, to help with resettlement issues, uh, particularly related around health and well-being of these Montagnard communities at that time. And since then, I've worked with a number of other groups. I continue to work with Montagnards, but I also have worked on projects with Latinos, uh, Latino immigrants, with um, other Southeast Asian immigrants, and immigrants from continental Africa, projects involving Sudanese, projects involving Congolese. And so... Coming forward these past several years, I've worked, uh, myself and my students have worked with refugee and immigrant communities to address health concerns, put programming in place, and really generally uh, learn about barriers and challenges to integration for these new community, newcomer communities. Mm-hmm. So what have, I'm going a little off script, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit about what you find or what you have found to be some of the more rewarding aspects of the work that you do. Absolutely. Um, I always joke about being a well-fed, community-engaged researcher, and <laughs> What that means really is that I have found it very rewarding to spend time with individuals and community members from the refugee communities, learning more about them, listening to them, sharing meals with them. I myself am an immigrant, and so one of the soft skills that I bring to the field is my cooking skills. And so... One of the things that I have found over the years that have been has been useful is to to be present and to be present in a way that you're engaging and learning from the communities that the newcomer communities that are here. We have a very diverse community; more than 90 languages spoken in the school system, and that makes for a very vibrant and festive atmosphere, 
that we can capitalize on and learn from. So some of those aspects uh, feed nicely into collaboration, uh, working with others who know more about their community, who understand the nuances of daily life, and partnering with them to move forward on some of the initiatives they're concerned about. And I like to say that while we here in academia have certain skills and talents, really we are consultants to the communities who are quite clear about some of the things they need, what they what drives them, and what they see as their future in the new environment. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what is one of your... Um, expertise dishes that you like to cook? Ah, so I found that rice is a common um, meal or food or item or side dish or main dish among many of the groups. So I like to bring first the rice that I make, which is the rice and peas with coconut from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, to uh, the table. So that's one of the dishes I start out with, and it's great because it can be a side item or if folks eat, are big meat eaters, it, it complements meat, but it's also um, available for folks who have other dietary um, preferences. So I usually start out with something like rice. Um, you can't really go wrong with that. <laughs> and, um, then I experiment various ways in very many different ways adding spices as well as fruits nuts um, types of meat fish shrimp seafood to this pot so it's in a way it's a it's it's a it's symbolic because it, it can be a one pot meal but it looks very flavorful very colorful thank you for sharing that problem <laughs> so as we kind of dig in a little bit more into the topic of immigrant and refugee experiences, I think it might be helpful for our listeners to grow a deeper understanding of particular terms, immigrant, migrant, refugee. Could you help us understand a little bit more about each of those identities? Certainly. I'll start with immigrant, and this is a term used generally to refer to quote-unquote aliens residing in the United States. Um, and so a legal alien is somebody who has entered the U.S. legally and is now calling the U.S. home. So they, they are residing and living here on a more permanent basis, and they are coming their origin is from a foreign country. Migrant, these are persons who move from one place to another, especially in order to find work or for a better living circumstances or better living conditions. And so you will hear the term migrant worker in North Carolina, we have a large migrant worker or migrant farm worker population. And then the final one is the refugee. And a refugee is a person who flees his or her country due to persecution or well-founded fear of persecution. And this is persecution because of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or if they belong to a particular social group. And refugees are legal, and so it's a legal definition because they're admitted into the United States as refugees, and they have access to resources as legal residents. So those are simple, simply put, definitions. Um, it's It gets their levels of immigrants, but 
those are the basic ones by which uh, individuals are defined. And how would you describe the impact of social stigmas attached to those particular identities on folks' ability to really engage with communities and feel supported in their journey? A lot of times uh, the, the challenge for refugees when they come in, and depending on the world region, is to fit in to the larger fabric of society. And coming in with a different language or a different cultural orientation has its pluses, but it has its challenges. And so we see a lot of times refugees, particularly those refugees who are identified as refugees of color, refugees with different religious um, practices or beliefs, a lot of times they, they are, there's negative uh, stereotyping of these individuals. So, for example, individuals who are coming in and are Muslim are discriminated against. We see those coming from the African continent being discriminated against. They're not quite, they're not considered uh, African Americans, they're not considered black, and so they are in the middle of a lot of times conflict because they don't, they're not perceived as belonging. The other issue is the term refugee comes with the connotation, well, then you've fled, you've been living in camps or less than um, appropriate circumstances. And so you carry that title of refugee. In fact, conversation I've had and with others um, is when are you no longer a refugee? And when are you no longer an immigrant? And it seems to me that you be, you're still an immigrant in the country 10, 20, 30 years after arriving here. So these are some challenges for communities as they try to integrate themselves. Um, and also trying to balance their two cultures. Many immigrants and refugees come here and they want to adopt uh, some of the ways and practices belong that, that allow them to identify as now, I am in America, I am now um, part of America, and I'm American. And so they face some challenges in trying to balance that with keeping some of the rich cultural richness that they bring with them. Mm-hmm. So going off of that and kind of looking at public and social policies and how they affect the health and well-being of immigrant and refugee girls and women, what are some points within the context of access to health care, public safety resources, public assistance resources that are really standing out in current climate? Uh, yes. So when you think of immigrant women and girls, and immigrant refugee women and girls, the majority at least two-thirds of legal immigrants to the United States are women and girls. And because of gender, race, ethnicity, and the partic their particular status, these women and girls suffer a burden. In fact, it is stated that they suffer a triple burden because, of course, discrimination because of gender, because of race, because of immigration status. Large numbers of immigrant women have been coming through these past few years. You know, if we look further back, we, we saw immigration 
mostly men with women following behind. Now we have quite a few women coming through the pipeline, and they're doing this, of course, through refugee resettlement, but also family-based immigration is putting a lot of women in our pipeline. <laughs> and so a lot of these women are at risk. They're vulnerable for a number of things. One is um, many of the women are trapped in um, sometimes violent relationships. Many are not able to interact with the system because, again, they are mostly coming for family-based immigration and so not necessarily employment-based. And so they're less likely to be employed or be interacting with the larger society. In fact, less likely to drive, uh, speak the language, and interact with daily services. So a lot of times they're in they're, they're at risk for um, being in violent situations. They're at risk of being abused when they're in, in employment because, again, they may not have the skill sets, they may not have the language set, uh, skills to advocate for themselves. And some of these women and girls are at risk for human trafficking. So there is a... Um, some of the policies we have where now there is separation or that we have reduced the number of individuals coming through uh, and being resettled, we see that a lot of women are at risk for not being reunited with their spouses or their children, and that puts them at risk. So particularly looking at accessing public safety resources and, well, I guess all of them, really. You know, mm-hmm. there over the summer, there was a lot, at the local level, particularly in Alamance County, there was a lot of narrative around the 287G program. Could you give a little bit of a background on what 287G is and the implications of that program being mobilized. Okay. So 287G is a process or a program where ICE works with the, well, the I, let me put this way, the Immigration, U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement, sorry, works closely with local law enforcement or state law enforcement. They partner together um, to have authority to enforce immigration within the jurisdictions. And so with this kind of understanding, law enforcement has been able to really do a broad sweep and detain individuals who they feel is a threat to public safety. And a lot of these individuals that have been targeted have been immigrants. And these immigrants, many of whom have minor, minor um, infarctions, minor traffic tickets, Things like traffic tickets uh, have been jailed and put into deportation proceedings. So this 287G has been a threat to communities with immigrants and refugees. One, because they're looking for individuals who don't have proof of citizenship or permanent residency, or individuals who are undocumented, and they are putting these individuals, they're arresting them and putting them into deportation proceedings. And what that means is individuals are being taken from their families, and 
put into proceedings. So we've got families that have been traumatized by this process. It also puts into place what we call racial profiling. And uh, this has been an issue for communities and for communities of color. And women and girls are no less um, at risk than anybody else. They are at risk for being uh, arrested and deported. So given all of that, how does a social policy, public policy such as 287G interact with immigrant and refugee communities and their access to employment and, you know, looking at young girls of color who are engaging school systems. What does it look like for their access to education? Certainly the 287G program has created a sense of fear versus a sense of safety for immigrant refugee families, um, for girls um, of color in the school system. It means that they are at risk, for example, of being in the, you know, school to deportation pipeline where mine, again, there are minor offenses um, are grounds for students being um, expelled or, you know, just a, a very zero, t- what we call a zero tolerance policy. And so here are students, girls who are put into our system, a juvenile justice system, which then um, creates vulnerability to being uh, deported, put into deportation proceedings. So for immigrant and refugee women and girls, this is this adds another level of vulnerability. Um, a lot of folks we talk to will will be fearful that they go to work, will ICE come and get them uh, on the way to school, or if they're at school, what will happen? And I, and so we've got a program here that really for communities has created even conflict where communities have been trying to build a trusting relationship or a working relationship with law enforcement. But here is a policy that now has created conflict and fear and suspicion in communities. I know that, for example, I have been part of conversations, meetings with uh, law enforcement in Guilford County trying to bridge gaps between communication gaps between law enforcement and the Latino community. Um, for uh, women and girls who are at risk and in situations of domestic or intimate partner violence, the idea of calling for help or calling law enforcement that idea that if they call, not only will they not get help, but they'll be put into deportation proceedings. This is really a disruptive policy, and um, we have tried here in our community to, to really assure folks through dialogue that um, what their rights are and how to go about um, working within the systems and with the resources to ensure their own safety. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge, and we've done a lot more, and I've, there are organizations in Greensboro that has worked, have worked closely with the communities to assure them of strategies and things and who to call, what to do in in, in the event that uh, they are caught in the loop, one of these loops, and you know, put in deportation proceedings. And women and girls aren't aren't powerless. They their voices are strong, and they are 
a lot of times at the forefront of of really protesting and making it known why these policies are counter to the safety of not just immigrants, refugees, but the entire community. Mm-hmm. One of the things that have come to mind as you're as you've been sharing your narrative, thinking about families who may have undocumented status and thinking about how there are programs in public school systems for free and reduced lunch. But there some information has been presented that families who would absolutely qualify for free or reduced lunch for their children just choose to not engage that resource because of the fear of getting on the radar at all. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, this, again, is another challenge, and I, and I use the term challenge versus barrier, because many of these families, their children qualify for these lunches. But the fear, again, of getting on the radar and the fear of deportation and the fear of fracturing the family as a result of deportation prohibits the students from partaking of these programs that are set up for low-income families or children in need. And this is a challenge for household security and household food security in general. We have programs that families can access, WIC, SNAP. These are programs that households can access, but because the household has, they have individuals with mixed immigration status, they are less likely to partake because they don't want to put those other members at risk. Mm-hmm. So it's creating a challenge here. We've got something for kids. They can have a nutritious meal, which then, of course, helps them as they learn. And so here we have kids that are not partaking of this, and therefore a hungry kid is a kid that's less likely to learn, less likely to achieve goals set in terms of you know their classroom goals, their everyday learning. And so they fall behind. Uh, One strategy also is to begin to work with households to educate them on their rights again and educate on access issues. It's a challenge because the fear is bigger than anything else. And for those families, the best strategy they are using is to keep everybody safe and, and by not being too visible, not using the services, you keep the household safe. On the other hand, we see in in a lot of immigrant refugee households, we see a lot of food insecurity mm-hmm. because we aren't accessing programs. The same goes for health care. We see a lot of fear is the main driver for not accessing or one of the main drivers for not accessing services which you qualify for. So, you know, if a child is experiencing food insecurity and, you know, you mentioned how some families have mixed citizenship status. So when I get hungry, I, you know, I'm less patient. I... You know, I remember as a child acting out if I was hangry, as they say. So I'm thinking that children who are experiencing food insecurity will, that there might be some behavioral manifestations in, at school. What, what do you think about that? Yes, that's, that's not an uncommon scenario. For, for children, particularly children who have come from 
refugee camps where there had been less structure than what we have now in our school system. A lot of times these children have or need more time settling in as well as they have challenges with a more formal scenario. And what happens is these children get labeled as, um, you know, behaviorally challenged when they have not been used to sitting in a classroom in rows or in desks for an extended period of time. They have had a lot of outdoor um, freedom, and um, so they get labeled. And once they're labeled, uh, they are put into special classroom settings or special or targeted as uh, children who are trouble. And eventually, this could lead to, along the line, school dropout. And so their success is in jeopardy. We have here in Greensboro our newcomer school where our immigrant refugee children or school-age children can attend for up to a year or so where they can learn the system but also learn English and uh, be able to communicate and understand a little bit more about our system and its services before putting into mainstream. And so we've worked with some of those issues and hopefully continue to do so. And we've addressed some of the issues uh, with, you know, food issues, the fear of the services. So parents of those children have been educated. So there are some strategies in place. They're not perfect, but trying to help and reduce the likelihood of truancy, um, dropout, just, you know, behavioral issues in the classroom for these kids, and also educate parents. And as you started out saying, you know, things like food insecurity or household food insecurity it would be a precursor to some of these behavioral issues. Work with the teach, work with teachers and school personnel to be able to look at the child as a whole child and look at the child within the family context. So there's a, been a fair amount of education, fair amount of dialogue, and thankfully programming to assist schools with students. Uh, who are coming from different regions and have these challenges both at school and at home. Mm -hmm. So you have mentioned a couple of times the school to deportation pipeline. And you did an excellent job of explaining what that process can look like. If you could speak to how the fear of deportation can affect the emotional well-being of young children. I'm thinking specifically about families where potentially the parents may not be documented, but the children are. And so, like, what does that stress look like for children? We know more now than we did before about this stress and its long-term impact on the children. And so for children who must function day-to-day, knowing that they may come home and a parent may be gone, this is, this is quite a challenge. So what we see are, again, mental health needs among this population, and they are unmet needs. The children, imagine you are not sure if your mom and dad will be in place when you get back from school. So there is kids, a lot of, lot of kids are afraid to go to school 
not because they don't like school, but because they're afraid that if they leave their parents, they may not come back and find their parents. We have had uh, accounts, anecdotal accounts, of parents being stopped um, while they're driving, and of course they are undocumented or they don't have the appropriate driving or driver's license or ID, and the parents are taken away with the children right there. And so, and then the children will have to either go to foster care or to some other relative. And so this is causing tremendous um, mental health issues such as children unable to sleep, so interrupted or poor sleep, depression, even suicidal tendencies, um, and then, of course, acting out, as we would call it, getting into fights. So, and then children who, who were once vibrant and playing now are sad and um, withdrawn. So it is a lot of pressure, and this long-term, the long-term impact follows them into adulthood and puts them at risk for substance use and abuse, um, suicide, as well as being um, unable to function, hold down jobs, um, you know, do normal uh, everyday life activities. So this has far-reaching implications, and we have done very little to address this issue. Our, our, our children, um, many immigrants and refugees will tell you, I am here and I'm struggling through for my children. So it's sort of counterproductive when children have to worry uh, about not having their parents around because they're deport, deported. Mm-hmm. And we haven't done a very good job of figuring out, well, in the event, what do we do? How do we handle this? And what do you see? So the current national and local climate is quite troubling. In what ways are you seeing this effect? the issues that we have kind of talked through? Well, there there are a couple of things to think about. Um, I'll, I'll go back to looking at the issue of women and girls. In the current climate, we have, one, reduced the number of refugee admissions to the United States and to the resettlement communities, which means that we have less we have less intact families or will have less intact families. And by that, I mean several families who have individuals and loved ones, probably spouses or mothers or siblings on their way and to be, to re, to be reunited with each other. And so one, we are breaking up, breaking apart families who have already gone through a tremendous amount of trauma and stress. Uh, The other thing we're doing, particularly for women and girls, is we're enhancing their vulnerability. So in the wake of the current climate, if you think about it, we are separating children from from mothers. We are also deporting or detaining for extended periods of time these women and girls, these mothers, these sisters, in facilities that are not not set up for them to be there. They have very little access to care for physical health and very little mental health counseling. So this current climate, what we see happening is we are really challenge to maintain health and well-being of our immigrants and refugees under these circumstances. We understand that there are services uh, that folks qualify for, but they're not going to be, those that are legal will not be accessing these because, again, of fear. And I have been in meetings with refugee and immigrant women who are asking what will happen to us can we go forward? Will they send us back? Um, 
if we use these services, if we're visible, what will happen to us? So it's a challenge. And the policies um, in place do not necessarily encourage a, a, a welcoming sentiment. So folks are afraid because they're feeling an anti-immigrant sentiment. And that is challenging. Um, it's challenging for women in the workplace also because, again, they may be at higher risk for abuse in the workplace. And so not knowing their rights, not knowing this uncertainty is really creating a challenge. And if I may put it, this is a mental health is going to be be a big area of need and continue to be that way for a while. So what are we as a local community getting right? What are we getting right? Um, we, we are working to continue to give the message that we welcome individuals. And so in our local community, we have, for example, International Advisory Committee, and that's made up of immigrants and refugees. And the International Advisory Committee was put in place to have representation and speak up about the unique challenges faced by our, our newcomers our, and our, those immigrants and refugees living here over a period of time. So we've begin to put together structure for having voice. Uh, we've also reached out to individuals. So in our community, we have brought on individuals to educate the larger public. So public forums have been set up and welcome anyone to come to understand, ask questions, meet individuals. We've had a neighbor to stranger to neighbor dialogues uh, to be able to talk about my immigrant or refugee neighbor next door and how they are the same or different than I am. So our community here, we've been working. We don't get everything right and it's not always perfect, but dialogue has been occurring we do have a um, program that is a model program, and it's administered through Faith um, International. Um, and this organization, this nonprofit, has put on an ID drive and has been able to attract attention, national attention, because they're providing IDs for folks who otherwise couldn't get IDs. And these IDs at least folks have on them to say who they are, the family they belong to, rather than being um, thrown into jail. So in the absence of being able to get a driver's license, just holding an ID made it, it it's a big deal. Um, so... We've had a program that's been featured nationally, and I think we run this twice a year. And in the ID program, we have locals also getting IDs in support of our immigrant and refugees. And I spoke earlier also about initiatives such as the Newcomer School, the work the Center for New North Carolinians is doing in doing outreach to communities, um, having community centers on sites where large number of refugees but in particular live and having outreach there, um, citizenship classes. We, we've had a number of also challenging moments in which we've had to bring the community together and really search deeper and say what what are our obligations, what are rights of individuals. So right now we're dealing with renters' rights so that folks aren't discriminated against or um, put in situations such as poor housing that puts them and their families at risk. So we're working on some issues, and I think that the mindset to resolve things 
is what we're getting right. We still have a long way to go. My own work, I've been working with the next generation to encourage them while they're in higher ed to succeed, to encourage those that are have yet to think about getting into higher ed or getting a post-secondary education. I'm working with those to encourage them to seek further training, uh, also to think about the best ways to help and serve their communities, their cultural, no- their cultural knowledge, their advocacy skills are important to moving the community forward, particularly for women and girls. This is very important, and we've been working with refugee women, particularly the Congolese women. I'm a part of a group, that the Omoja group, and it's a group of Congolese women and other women, mostly refugees, who are really coming together and supporting each other uh, and supporting each other in different ways, whether it is visiting folks that are sick, child, taking care of children, um, you know, having, celebrating births. Uh, we've had a lot of, quote-unquote, baby showers and supporting mothers and motherhood. Many of the women find it hard to parent in the American culture, and so they have been supportive of each other, educating each other about how to survive and to be safe in our community. Is Greensboro considered a sanctuary or some say safe city? Well, I haven't seen it as a sanctuary city, but we've had efforts here. I know we we have had at least one person or two people that have are still housed in um, a religious organization or a church and um, being protected by congregation. And so we are we are advocates for sanctuary cities, but we haven't declared. Uh, to my knowledge, it hasn't been declared a sanctuary city. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but as far <laughs> as I know, we've had we have had um, we've had a few a couple people who have been um, protected by our community. Well, looking at wrapping up our time together, want to kind of go back to the initial point as to the theme of this podcast, which is learning, lifting, leading, social equity for and by black and brown girls and women. And this is aligned with the 33rd Women's Conference that took place at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, back in October. Okay. One of the questions that I am asking folks is, could you make a few suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be leading, lifting, and learning to bring about social equity? Absolutely. What women bring with them when they come from cultures, other cultures, and come here is a tremendous sense of resiliency, a tremendous resiliency. And with this resiliency comes a sense of purpose for many of these women, as I said earlier, they do this for their children. So they have a sense of sacrifice. And so working with women, I think it is important for working with women and girls from these cultures to harness that energy and that voice to speak up and to make it known what is appropriate and inappropriate in terms of what they're experiencing in their lives. And so, again, I'll go back to working with a group, a small group of women, Omoja, very powerful. We had a big tragedy in which, due to poor housing scenario, we lost five children in one family. And this was a, a really hard time for the Congolese community and women stepped up to the plate to um, not just comfort the mother and father of this family, 
but also to offer assistance and a way forward. And so I think in working with, we recognize, we have to recognize the strengths of these women, these mothers, and the next generation of young women. So I think one of the ways we can do that is also help women retool. Many of the women have, were advocates in their countries before they got here, and we can harness that. They know how to reach out. They know how to speak up. Um, the second, the next generation, their children are the ones that we should be targeting and making sure that they don't drop out, but they make it through school and they are represented in in places that their voices are needed. And so I see us thinking about women and thinking about their resiliency, harnessing that strength to advocate advocate for policies that say, okay, it's not okay for me to be abused, it's not okay for me to be trafficked once I get here. Um, a lot of times women are caught in these in these situations and there's no voice because uh, we need more women at the table, make this decision-making table. And I hope that even in the work that I'm doing with the next generation, um, they are moving forward, they are charting the way, they're setting the priorities and basically looking to us to train them in some areas and for us to help them take the lead. Well, thank you so much for engaging in this conversation. I really appreciate your time and the perspective that you have been able to provide. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Dr. Sharon Morrison, Associate Professor of Public Health Education at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Special thanks for this podcast. Go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.